Hey everybody, welcome to the Full Frame Podcast. It's Zach Griffin. It's been a few weeks since my last recorded podcast, and the reason is my dad passed away at the beginning of September. My dad was a retired army chaplain and had served for 30 years. So this podcast is kind of personal. I um, I went on Amazon and found a documentary made by a fellow chaplain in the army in Afghanistan, and so I reached out to him and we chatted for about an hour, a little bit over, about our backgrounds, his getting into the army, why he served as a chaplain, and why he made the documentary called No Greater Love that you can watch on Amazon now. Um, so give it a listen. Um, if you feel like reaching out or chatting, we should chat. But uh, here is my interview with Chaplain Justin Roberts, retired. Thanks. Hey everybody! Welcome to the Full Frame uh, Podcast. Just, just, oh. uh, just uh, take, stop and take it from the top. One more time. Okay, okay. You ready? Chaplain Roberts, thank you for joining me. Hey, it's good to be here. I just wanted to get uh, a baseline for you. Um, can uh, Can you tell me a little bit about when um, you got started um, with your media? Or with your filmmaking, um, I, I know that your first film, No Greater Love, was a product of your deployment. But could you tell me a little bit about your background in media? Yeah, so uh, I grew up in a small town in Texas called Stephenville, Texas, and uh, I, working in agriculture, I knew I could always go do that. <laughs> I knew exactly <laughs> everything about that business, but I knew nothing about film or writing mm. and uh, how to pursue those kind of career paths. And so it wasn't until I got into seminary that I saw that they had a media course. And um, during the time I was taking Greek, ancient Greek, mm -hmm. and I was doing horribly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, I could not stand that. So I didn't want to do a master's in theology because I just could not stand studying the ancient languages because I was just absolutely horrible at it. But mm -hmm. I loved all of my creative writing classes. And so it was about that time I decided to skip over to focus on uh, masters in media, media and communications, and uh, that's where that door started to open for me as far as the possibilities of what I could do with it. So that was was that masters at um, a traditional liberal arts school, or was it at no Dallas Sem Theological? Yeah, it's Dallas oh. Theological Seminary. Okay, great. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I guess I didn't realize that seminaries <clears throat> offered th degrees like that. Yeah, some do. And it, it really depends on uh, the school. It's not typical. Mm -hmm. It's not definitely not usual. But um, the professor, one of the professors there uh, has worked in the industry for decades, you know, doing acting and writing. And um, mm -hmm. so for him he was the one who championed it and helped start it up. And I got to sit under that um, umbrella, that tutelage. Mm -hmm. That's great. What, um, what were some of the things you learned while you were there? I mainly what I was focused on was screenwriting. And so I, I was able to somewhat dictate the direction I went with the degree. And that was the area that I was most interested in. And so the, a lot of the stuff on production and camera stuff, I had to teach myself. Mm -hmm. um, but on the screenwriting, that's where I got to kind of get immersed in that. And um, I think that's my first love, too. You know, I love photography. I love, you know, the filmmaking side, but um, the writing side is where my heart's at. Are you, do you consistently write? Uh, not here lately. It's like here lately it's become more about the, the producing side mm -hmm. and, you know, getting projects started up, getting the funding put together. Um, you know, those things that just have to get done, uh, before you can go have fun. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that's where a lot of my time is right now is on the producing side, but I'm still, you know, putting the projects together, putting, you know, writing the concepts, putting mm -hmm. all those things together. And, uh, we just finished up production on another project. So crafting the story, but I'm working with a story editor on that one. How do you yeah. find, um, you know, the difference between uh, creative writing a screenplay versus like um, a producing based on a documentary feel? So like, um, do you do a two column script or like how do you uh, usually, what's your process? I, I don't do the two column script. It's, it, for me, I'm just putting together the, the outline first. 
and getting the larger portion of what I think the story is going to be just out on paper. Um, and we're not even at the stage yet where we're translating it over. And we have like about 20 pages uh, mm-hmm. of a script, but we were doing that. We wrote that for a grant, you know? Gotcha. So, <laughs> and like with, with No Greater Love. Yeah. Yeah. And with No Greater Love, I put together, it was like a 30 pages of an outline. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just to kind of give a template for the editor, when he gets into the weeds, he knows what to be looking for, what's the overall direction to go is. And, uh, but I'm not telling him, hey, take this individual clip here, put it there. Right. <laughs> These five seconds needs to go right here. You know, well, I, I didn't a, get in bent to the weeds. Yeah. That can be a lot of, um, at least in my experience, um, can be a lot of like early scripted kind of doc stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, or like shorter scripted doc stuff does the two column st- script. Right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, that's interesting. I think, um, in so far as the, uh, the docu- the outline goes for the documentary, is that based on, um, your, um, voiceover or is it based on voiceover plus the interviews you've done already or what's it, what's it based on? It's, it's a bit of both. I mean, like the way I approach it is my voiceover is just the mortar to help the sequences connect together. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, we start with the general idea of what we want to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, here's the footage that we've got. Here's the storylines that we've got. Here's the raw materials we have to work with. And we start trying to put it together. And then whenever you see like, ah, oh, man, this, this segment is not segueing well to this other segment. We need to do a jump and then we'll fix that with the voiceover. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then just making sure that we're hitting kind of like any particular themes or uh, a point that I want the audience to get. That's when I, you know, will go in for some voiceover mm-hmm. if I don't have it on camera, you know? Um, so that was at least my approach with no great love when we're taking a similar approach with this next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll probably keep repeating this because yeah. <laughs> I like the first course. I like the first person protagonist point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way I, take it is it's kind of like uh, to kill a mockingbird hmm. you know with scout she's a protagonist but she's not necessarily the hero you know atticus is the hero so she's just a viewpoint protagonist just to observe the hero and what he's doing mm-hmm. and so i'm taking that kind of i'm for the audience on that kind of vehicle to where you can look through my eyes you can see what's happening um I'm not necessarily doing all the actions, but I'm just viewpointing it. But then you can arrive at the same kind of conclusions I'm arriving at. So that was our approach with NGL, but that's probably going to be our same approach with, you know, future films too. That's great. Um, insofar as creative writing goes, um, when you're, when you are doing it, um, because I'm the same way, I think I, I write when the mood strikes. Um, yes. Uh, what kind of things are you drawn towards? Is it kind of similar subject matter? Or are you just often um, in like a sci-fi world or? No, like a scripted. Um, I, I, I think I have more fun with scripted than I do documentaries mm-hmm. because you can do what you want. So when I'm like just daydreaming, I'm not daydreaming usually about documentaries as much. Um, and so it's a lot of different stuff though. I mean, historical, which is, you know, I try to stay away from because I couldn't afford to do that right now. <laughs> uh, so, no um, but yeah, the, there's a couple of projects that, you know, we're working on right now. Well, one in particular that, um, 20 pages into it or 10 pages into it. Um, 20 pages, if you count the outline 10 with the script, but I'm starting to, to crank on it, you know, um, while working on a documentary. So I don't know if I'm a good uh, dispenser of my time. Because <laughs> oh. I should be working on one or the other, but I kind of, I, I, I just kind of have to mess with it. And uh, so it's moving. It's, it's a, it's a bank robbing movie though. Cool. But it's a, yeah. It's, but it's, it's more social commentary, that kind of stuff. It's not an action thing. Yeah. It can be both. <laughs> it can be both. It can do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, very cool. No, I'm I'm also myself drawn to um, kind of like period piece um, dramas or or um, action films or or even like I love period piece horror, but um, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something about cell phones that ruins movies for me. So I, <laughs> I like to think yes. of it that way. 
Yeah, the the first the first murder in every horror modern horror is the cell phone. I know. <laughs> you gotta kill it somehow. And you have to come up with some sort of excuse for it. Right? <laughs> yes. Um it's just it kills all horror films. Yeah. Um but uh well that's really cool. Um I guess uh going back to um when you were in seminary, um was the military always the goal or was it just um to get your degree at a seminary uh, it going back a little bit growing up uh my father was a drug dealer kind of just a, a rough guy mean guy and uh so he was in the picture for a little bit then he was out of the picture um but the one guy who was always there for me uh, was my grandfather. Mm. And uh, he had served 20 years in the Army, uh, which spanned over three wars, the uh, end of World War II, Korean, the beginning of Vietnam. Wow. And so every gen- – and then my uncle served in Vietnam and was killed in a training accident shortly after. Mm. Um, so every generation we've had somebody serve. So I felt called to serve. Uh, just kind of following that tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know how. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. And I also felt led to go into ministry. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know how those two could combine until I found out about you know, the chaplaincy. So I knew when I was going to seminary that I was going to go to become a chaplain. Um, but whenever I you know, fell in love with writing and you know, working on this kind of stuff, uh, I didn't know how it could combine mm-hmm. or if it could. <laughs> it's it's two different worlds. It is. Yeah. You, you've blended it beautifully, if I can say. And I think um, that's it's really great that uh, you were able to find that. And I think that that's what they talk about when writing. It's like finding the, the thing that only you can write. Yeah. So what's the what was the uh, process for becoming a chaplain? Oh, gosh. Um, so you, you have to have 72 hours of grad school, at least. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had about 90. And uh, you typically have to have like two years of pastoral work or like work in your ministry profession um, after that. But I was able to get that done while I was going to school. And so on average, it takes most chaplains about six years before they can become a chaplain, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. after college add six years and then you can become then you also have to go through chaplain officer basic core, you know, all of those steps and hurdles. Um, so, but I was able to, during that time, we were just meeting chaplains. And so I was able to get a waiver on my work experience and, you know, jump right in. Okay. Um, and I got my work experience while I was in seminary and they were like, okay, we'll, we'll count that. And uh, so I got to jump in. That's great. What was your two years or your equivalent uh, two years pastoral work? Uh, I was working with a ministry called Young Life, okay. which is, yeah, it's kind of like a youth leader. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed it. It was a, it was a lot of fun. And actually, my um, uh, sound guy was uh, one of my students oh, cool. whenever I was a Young Life leader. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, he went and got his degree and uh, you know, went into film himself, mm-hmm. just kind of focusing on audio. Very cool. I um yeah my I'm I think that's common to be um a youth pastor um for chaplains. I mean that <laughs> yes. was what my that was what my dad did. Um, yeah. So um and in you know near where he's from. Yeah. So so I think that was a, a blessing. So you don't typically just enlist then. Um, you are recruited directly into the chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you do what's called a direct commission. Okay. And uh, I was enlisted while I was in college just for a year or two. And then I did a direct commission. So I went from being a specialist to a second lieutenant with the direct commission. Mm. The Whenever I you know, was uh, admitted into seminary. And so they do that with doctors, lawyers, and chaplains, where you can do a direct commission. Very cool. Um, yeah. what, um, what is the uh, initial process of training and things like this? Um, because... Uh, you mention in the documentary that uh, you know chaplains don't typically carry weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, are you still trained with them? Like, do 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 you guys just do kind of a no, no? Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, it, you were ordered by the chief of chaplains not to use a weapon in combat, mm-hmm. 
and um, also advised not to do that while you're in uniform. So we're still considered non-combatants, at least by Western forces. Mm-hmm. Um, other forces may not take a similar look at us, though. <laughs> sure. So, but yeah. Um, yeah, well, I know because um, uh, my dad was also at Fort Bragg, and he did um, mm-hmm. jump training. He was a jump master. Oh, yeah. Um, so with the, uh, with the 82nd. Um, so did you get to go do that with the 101st? I know your battalion I, particularly was an infantry battalion. Yeah, I didn't. And it was, uh, it's actually, there's an odd thing here that it's difficult to get airborne from the 101st. You can get air assault, hmm. which is heli- helicopter stuff, uh, all day long. But to go get your jump wings, it's like, uh, I had one friend who used his vacation time to go do it. Oh, cool. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, he used all that vacation time. And then you know, luckily he had a very gracious wife. But, um, but yeah, so it's, it's a little bit harder. But, you know, I, I was there for a year with the 101st whenever I first got in. Mm-hmm. And then uh, deployed for a year and then uh, was back at Fort Campbell with the 101st for a year. And so it was just a, a year afterwards that you were deployed. Roger. So when you first found out you were getting deployed, can you describe what that was like? Um, it, we knew the deployment was coming up, and okay. it was a couple of different locations that we were looking at where we could go. And uh, one of them was known for being a hot area for IEDs. Hmm. And so then the other was where we wound up going, which was just known for being very kinetic um, you know, a hotbed for firefights and insurgents. And so, you know, it was a, a rock and a hard place kind of thing. You're going to a bad place. Mm-hmm. You just don't know which one. And uh, I prefer the latter. I mean, because those guys who get blown up, mm. you know, they get as many casualties. It's just uh, they don't get to shoot back. And it's a lot psychologically, it's a lot harder. Um, but for our unit, we were already – uh, struggling and kind of worn out mm-hmm. from even before we deployed. Uh, whenever I became a chaplain, my second day on the job, we had a suicide. Goodness. And uh, a week later, we had another one. And then a couple of months later, we had another one and then another one. And so uh, we also had a suicidal ideation, which is a gesture and attempt every single week for the first six months. Goodness. So in 2009, this was the most suicidal battalion in the military. Mm. And we were able to turn it around, but it took a, a lot of work, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a really good command team. They were really supportive of trying new things. But um, we started a program where it helped the guys to talk more. We started sitting down as you know, platoon-sized elements, 10 or 15 guys, and just doing a powwow of talking about what are the problems we're facing, how can we face it together, how can we work together, and you know, talk more about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And for infantrymen, talking is not usually the easiest thing. So <laughs> it was it was long going, but um, we did that before we deployed and also during the deployment. And at the end, since we were so suicidal on the front end and we had such a traumatic deployment, the fear was that when we came back, we were going to have more suicides, problems, and issues. But instead... We had zero suicides and a 70% reduction in suicidal ideations. Wow. And it, it wasn't because they just had a good-looking chaplain. It really, <laughs> the, the solution was is that they started opening up and connecting with each other more. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the, you know, the brotherhood and the sisterhood was really the cure. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, you know, it's not just soldiers that are facing these suicidal issues. I mean, you know, suicide has been rising among civilians as well. Mm-hmm. And so this really is, I think, a universal thing. You know, it does come down to relationships. It does come down to connecting and being intentional about it. So that's, that was our first challenge, even before we deployed. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, could you speak a little bit to, and you touched on this a little bit yet, uh, when you say that it's about their relationships and the brotherhood and sisterhood, but, um, being a, uh, a witness to people who, in, who, who are fellow soldiers in the military, but may not be of the same beliefs. You know what? It's funny. It's like, uh, 
whenever I'd have my first formation with everybody, I mean, everybody knows where I'm coming from because I'm literally wearing a cross, you know, on my chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and every chaplain wears their religious symbol on their chest, on their uniform. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would tell them, like, look, in my eyes, you're all heathens, but you're my heathens. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get through this together. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, most of them aren't Christian or they're nominal Christian. You know, and it's, uh, but that's what I love about it is it's people from every different kind of race, background, and religion, you know, coming together for something greater than themselves. That's what I love about the military. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people outside of it don't get is that a lot of the drama that's going on in society right now over all these divisions, you don't see that as much in the military because you're going to stand beside each other and possibly die with each other. So you, you get over a lot of the superficial stuff pretty quick mm-hmm. and learn how to serve one another. It's fascinating to me. I'm, and also yes. emotional because it's what my dad did. Um, yeah. But I think um, in, in that... You know, it's funny. It's like I was going to slide this in too. It's like when I was in Germany, uh, which you spent a lot of time there too, mm-hmm. My uh, I had three buddies who were chaplains. One was a Mormon, one was a priest, and one was a rabbi. And I was like, guys, we have to walk into a bar because <laughs> we will have a permanent joke for the rest of our lives. You just see what happens. You know? Yeah, you know, you know, a priest, a Mormon, and a rabbi, and a Protestant walk into a bar. That's like <laughs> that sounds like the perfect start of a joke. It does. I was going to say, but yeah, I mean, it's like it. it, it can I can't think of many places where there's as much diversity. Mm-hmm. Like in the chaplain corps, it's people who are ardent, strongly, strongly believed are willing to, to put their life on the line for what they believe, mm-hmm. who are coming together with people who believe radically different things, <laughs> right? completely different things. Mm-hmm. And they all have to work together. And what's amazing is they do, and they learn to love one another mm-hmm. and serve people who of all different kinds of beliefs. And that's what I love about it. I mean, I'm passionate about that. It's, it's beautiful. It's something I think we as a... You know, I say in the film that I understood America so much more on the mountaintops of Afghanistan than I do here because people from all different kinds of races, backgrounds, and religions were able to come together. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the America I believe in. That's the America that I love. Mm-hmm. I just don't see it a lot. Is that you know? still true for you or even more true given uh, how things have evolved since your deployment? Oh, yeah. 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 It's just gotten since then. I mean, in the last... 10 years, it's just gotten worse, hasn't it? I believe so. And, and it's just like that, it makes me so sad because it's, um, I, when I was in Afghanistan, I did see people able to work together and genuinely love one another, genuinely be willing to risk their lives and die for one another. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the America I believe in. That's the America that I'm, I'm happy to serve and, um, I want to see. Mm-hmm. When you were um, first deployed, or, or b- right before that, um, did you ever feel like um, your your training, in specifically uh, with you know seminary and religion, did you ever feel like it was not adequate enough to prepare you to talk to people? Um, in the military, like I, I, I don't know if that makes sense. That question. Yeah, but. yeah, it does. I. I think that being a chaplain, there's only so much the military can prepare you for. Mm-hmm. And there's only so much that school can prepare you for. It's more field craft than it is uh, science. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a high degree of social intelligence. Uh, you have to be able to just hang out with a soldier and joke around with them. Because it's it's just like any kind of relationship. If you really want them to come and talk to you about the worst things that they are experiencing uh, in their life, things that they would be embarrassed to talk to other people about, then you you have to create that kind of bond. It's not going to automatically happen. They're not just going to show up to your office, of course, and start telling you stuff. Mm-hmm. Not typically, and so uh, that that requires a high degree of social intelligence, the ability to walk up to a group and start joking around and get people laughing. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you do that enough times on a daily basis. Then you start getting the, uh, Hey chappy, can I talk to you? 
mm-hmm. which they'll run up. Hey, champion, can I talk to you? And then you walk and talk. Um, but they're embarrassed a lot of times to go to the chaplain's office. Mm-hmm. They don't want people seeing them doing that. So you've got to create that kind of environment where it's cool. It's fine. You know, you got to be the, uh, Ferris Bueller of the unit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really, yeah, that's cool. Um, I think, uh, and, and it's, it speaks to like a specific kind of person to be called, not to just be a soldier, but to be, uh, first, a a chaplain than a soldier, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta become chappy, mm-hmm. you know, where they just start calling you chappy. <laughs> and, uh, I remember like one of my favorite moments was, uh, I would sometimes joke around with the guys like, look, if you stand in position of attention, I'm going to give you a big old awkward hug. Don't do it. <laughs> and, and we would joke around about it. And then, um, you know, slowly, cause the privates are the ones that struggle with the most because they just got out of basic they're frightened of captains mm-hmm. and, and so that's that's they're just so afraid and if they're afraid of you they're not going to tell you that their girlfriend just broke up with them or they're thinking about suicide or whatever's going on with them mm-hmm. so you've got to get around that you've got to figure out a, a way around that uh tension that anxiety and uh so you just start cracking jokes and so i had that running joke i never really did it but um my last day in the unit I was doing my walkthrough, just saying, hey, guys, it's my last day. Love y'all, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. one of the platoon leaders called all the guys to the position of attention. <laughs> so it was like the hug line uh, when I was walking out. I was like, yeah, those are nearly in tears. Um, mm-hmm. But I miss it. It's it's good guys. Mm-hmm. You know? well, yeah. well, speaking um, and going back just a, a little bit to um... – and I, I mentioned this before, but your um, your decision to carry the camera instead of yeah. being able to carry a weapon, um, what uh, what inspired that? Was it just the fact that uh, you were going to have to have something in your hands, or something more? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, the camera for me is kind of like a security blanket. Mm-hmm. Um, I film everything, anyways. And it's like, uh, even when I was in Germany, I, I couldn't travel without a camera. Mm-hmm. And I went on one trip and I was miserable the entire time. I can't just see things. I have to, I have to capture it. Where'd you go? Um, uh, I can't even remember. Uh, no, I do. I do. It was, um, uh, Potsdam in Berlin. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, I went and did this beautiful trip over there. No mm-hmm. way. I had to have a camera there. I think it was just to Berlin mm-hmm. and, um, I didn't get to shoot everything I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I hate this. But uh, so, but it's, I was going to have a camera. I mean, this is basically, it's just a part of my personality. I was going to, you know, it's a, if I go anywhere special, I'm going to. (laughs) Um, But it was also, I mean, I, I I can't carry a weapon. So it was giving me something to do. And I asked my commander, I was like, hey, is it okay if I carry a couple of cameras? And he's like, sure, just don't get shot. Yeah. And I was like, Roger. Goodness. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah. So you said that the area that you went was um, a hotbed for insurgents. Yeah. So it's, it's well, in the Hindu Kush mountains. Okay. There's only, it's, it kind of levels out to choke points. There's only certain valleys. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be able to fly into Afghanistan. So if they're coming from Pakistan, uh, Nuristan, Tajikistan, there's, there's certain paths that they almost have to take. Okay. And, uh, they don't want to climb all over the top of a mountain. You know, they're mm-hmm. going to take a valley and those valleys were Kunar province. Mm-hmm. And so it was a major intersection for the funnel of, you know, these fighters into Afghanistan. Hmm. And so, um, when you first, uh, got into the country, um, were you guys at um an outpost or were you mm-hmm. you were okay so um well there was like we had one main base and then i had three other smaller bases that i would go out to and then some outposts from there and um what uh what's the presence of the chaplaincy like on the ground there um so i had about 2000 soldiers under me for mm-hmm. for me to provide care for and uh i would bounce out to a different base like every week hmm. and uh then i would go back to my main base 
And so I would fly around constantly. Yeah. And then a, a Catholic priest would fly in just ever so often, every couple of months. And uh, that was about it. Hmm. So it was, it was me and a lot of people. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> what, what was traveling like there, flying around? Uh, I was, it, was, it was interesting because you, like, uh, you have the Black Hawks, but then you have like, these civilians uh, who were Canadians. Mm -hmm. uh, who were hired to just come and fly. And, huh. and that was, uh, I just remember this one guy with a really thick Canadian accent saying, hey, okay, so uh, <laughs> we're about to take off. And uh, if you put your seatbelt on, mm -hmm. you know, they just, hey, ring a bell or something if you need something. <laughs> and I kid you not, we flew to this other bigger base to get fuel. Mm -hmm. And when they got out, they're like, hey, uh, you, if you need to stretch your legs, you can, and we're going to, we're going to just hang out for a bit while we refuel. And I kid you not, they got out, they pulled out hockey sticks and they started <laughs> playing uh, just the, with the hockey, with a ball mm -hmm. uh, in the, on the airstrip. I, I was like, I was like, this is, I'm not making this up. I promise you. Um, did you get footage of it? That was the most Canadian thing I ever I experienced. I was like, That's, I didn't, I well, didn't. And I was bad. just like, no, I know. I didn't even think. I would always take photos and stuff of the uh, out of the chopper, but mm -hmm. I was cracking up. But they were brilliant pilots mm -hmm. because they're they're flying through. I mean, like RPGs are getting shot at them. Um, you know, they're flying through steep cliffs. The air is really thin, mm -hmm. so I mean, it was just really dynamic flying. They were brilliant, um, but that was possibly the most Canadian thing <laughs> I had ever seen, and uh, so I loved it. Yeah. Uh, um, and so you had every, every week you said you'd go to a different outpost mm -hmm. or a different base. Roger. And so I would basically, I would fly in, um, and my battle rhythm was a little bit different. Mm. Um, I had a really good, after the, the second suicide, I became really close friends with, uh, first Sergeant Wright, mm -hmm. uh, who was just a legend in the 101st phenomenal man. And uh, he became my mentor. And I can honestly say I learned more about being a chaplain from him than I, I had ever from anybody else. Mm -hmm. Because he just had this sincere love and care for the soldiers. He was focused. Hmm. He, was, he was hard as nails. He was grizzly and he was foul-mouthed. <laughs> um, but he was just very focused. I take care of my soldiers. Mm -hmm. and I was like, I wanted to be like that. I was like, that's, that's my true north. I want to be like that. Mm -hmm. And so he started mentoring me. Well, before we deployed, I asked him how I should go about the deployment. And he said, you know what? If you really want to connect with the guys, um, go out with each unit at least once on a patrol and be near the front during major operations to do your chaplain stuff. If you do that, the guys are really going to want to talk to you. And so I made that my mission was to go out with each platoon at least once mm -hmm. on a mission and to be near the front during major operations. And so the footage I captured, that was somewhat incidental. I mean, mm -hmm. I had the camera, but that's not why I was going out. Mm -hmm. The reason I was going out is, is because if the guys don't talk to me, we could have more suicides. Right. And so my ministry focus 100% was I need to reduce future suicides when we get home. The best way I can do that is to go out with these guys on these missions. Mm -hmm. Because after, and, I, and this was true. After we experienced combat together, my counselings went up. When we went through a pretty traumatic experience together, they opened up mm -hmm. and they were talking more. And so that was the my my mission for the year was to go out with each unit, be near the front during major operations, and um, I happened to have a camera, mm -hmm. and so that's how I, I caught everything I did. And and you were there for a twelve month deployment. Mm -hmm. um, how long was it before, was it Strong Eagle 1? Yeah, that was um, several months into it. Mm -hmm. Like, Because we thought that we were going to have a little bit of uh, downtime before the enemy really surged up. Mm -hmm. But the moment we got there, we started getting hit. And there was one month where every single week we lost somebody. Goodness. And it was just... Uh, it was different types of attacks too. I mean, we lost five from an IED. Mm -hmm. One of the one of them was a first sergeant, and then the next week, uh, one of our guys got shot, 
and then a suicide bomber who was a female, a young female, uh, mentally disabled uh, female. They strapped a bomb to her and sent her in, Goodness. killed two of our guys and, and wounded a lot of others. Mm-hmm. And so it was like back to back. And then we had an uh, RPG hit um, one of our bases and burned down the living quarters and killed another guy. So it was every single week. Um, guys were getting hit. So instead of trying to figure out how to take a defensive posture, our commander said, Hey, we got to go on offense and we got to clear, start clearing out valleys. Mm -hmm. And that's what strong Eagle one was, was, uh, to kind of change the momentum Mm -hmm. and put the enemy on the, their heels. So they're, they're walking backwards instead of pushing forward on us. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, uh, the thing that I spoke to my dad about, um, when he, he was deployed to Iraq for a year, um, and I think the thing he uh, he wisely kept away from me because he was gone my senior year of high school. Um, so I was you know, not like really young. I could understand what was going on. I knew the danger, but I didn't understand that there are no front lines on these battlefields. Yeah. It's kind of like it's very muddy. It, yeah. Like, um, so the, the, the fact that you had – a valley even is, is something, but, but there's still like, you know, you could mm-hmm. be in the base and you know, you, something could catch fire. Right. So, yeah. Um, well, and they would shoot down at you from the mountainsides. It's like we would set up, um, guards using the Afghan national army, mm-hmm. but sometimes the Afghan national army guards would look away <laughs> right. so, yeah. and we're getting shot at. And there's, you know, uh, they know how to use mortars just like we do. Mm-hmm. So they'd lob a mortar into our base. And uh, um, I remember one time I, I was out on a patrol at another base. And uh, the next day, these guys were like, hey, Chappie, we're going out to such and such if you want to come. And I was supposed to fly back to my my home base. Mm-hmm. But I was like, oh, OK, I'll, I'll go with you guys. And then I flew home later that night. Well, when I got to my, my tent, it looked like a a storm had hit it. There was just dust oh. everywhere and everything was tore up. Hmm. And I, I started looking and I was like, I asked one of the guys, what happened? He's like, Oh, you are here. He's like, yeah, mortar around hit your tent. Oh my God. <laughs> there was shrapnel that was blown all through it. Goodness. And I remember I had, uh, uh, I was working out a lot at the time and I had that protein powder mm-hmm. and the protein powder had all this shrapnel in it. And I was I was going to throw it away. Uh, and then my chaplain assistant, who was actually an 11 Bravo, he was an infantryman, special duty assigned to me. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, 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 no. We're not going to get to go back to the, the shop at for at least a month. Uh-huh. You know, we'll just we'll just pour it in and then shake it. And the shrapnel will sink to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and he did it. And I was like, it's the only protein powder that has anger in it. You I know. know. Well, be careful like, how much of it you drink, I guess. Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not that tough. You, like, uh, you, my stomach is not internally tough. No, I no. That, <laughs> that's pretty wild. But yeah, I mean, but if I had not been on that mission, I would have been hit by that mortar round and I'd be dead. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed, mm-hmm. I would have been working on something inside my tent during that time. Well, the chances were very great; mm-hmm. I would not be here. Yeah. Well, can I ask um, something that I wanted to ask later? But did the things you witnessed ever cause you to question? or to feel um, stronger either way? Uh, Was it more fluid than just one or the other? Um, I don't think anything ever caused me to question anything. I I mean, it seems like that would be uh, the typical narrative. Mm. Like, why God, you know, uh, raising my hands in the air every single time that we lost somebody or something tragic happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I was already pretty much fixed and affirmed, you know, on, on my beliefs, like what, what I was experiencing and, and what I was going to experience. I already knew it was going to be bad mm-hmm. and I was already expecting losses. I already was expecting, um, a lot of tragic stuff. Uh, but I also don't know if it necessarily, I mean, I, I think I, I became a stronger believer in, humanity and i'm not meaning this in a theological way so if there's anybody who's like oh he's a humanist like no it's not necessarily that it's just that people's capacity to love amazed me Mm. and people from all different kinds of beliefs were you know so selfless Mm -hmm. 
and that was beautiful. I I found more hope in humanity than uh, I think I ever had. Wow. And uh, I was just that I was so in awe of that. And it's you know I told the guys I was like you know I think I learned more about God from you than you would ever learn from me because I I saw this kind of selfless love that you know it talks about in the scriptures and that's like the name of the film. No greater love comes mm-hmm. from. John fifteen thirteen. No greater love has any person than this than to lay the, down their lives for their friends. Hmm. Now I understood that in theory when I was going through seminary. I understood that the concept of it, but I'd never witnessed it. And over there, I witnessed it mm-hmm. several times. People putting their lives on the line for others and then losing them. And uh, that is something tragic, and it's also something beautiful. Very much so. Well, and did, yeah. do you, can you pinpoint uh, a moment of the inception of the documentary? Um, was it something that you thought of before you went? Or was it something that you thought when you came back? Or was it over there sometime? I, it, I knew I was going to capture something. I was thinking of like a photo book or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly like some short stories. Um, but it just kind of eased. I'd say in Germany was when they, the pieces really started coming together. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got back, I wanted to capture some of the interviews. So I did some of the interviews. Uh, it was just me and my wife. She was my, uh, camera op and uh, <laughs> she, was, she was my DP. Mm-hmm. I just set the cameras up and then just had her run them so I could do the questions. And we did it in my living room. And, um, so, I mean, like we, we got some of those things and then, um, when I was in Germany, I started putting the pieces together a lot more solidly and we're like, okay, we want to do this. So I, I talked to the guys and just said, Hey, I, I want to make a documentary mm-hmm. and I told them the concept and then everybody was good to go for it. And, uh, that's great. Yeah. Now you went, what years were you deployed? Uh, it was 2009 to, no, sorry, 2010 to 2011. Okay. So, and the film came out around 2015 Mm-hmm. Um, and typically doc can take a little bit longer to produce depending on, yeah. or to, to, to be in production on, it can take a long time, <laughs> yes. um, you know? Um, yeah. so, uh, so what was, um, and you talk about it in the documentary in no greater love a bit, but, um, what was that process like when you, when you first said, Hey guys, I want to make a documentary. Was it about going through and finding the tapes and the footage and, things to back that up what was that like that uh, that was uh, I, I was not a good organizer during my time in Afghanistan mm. <laughs> and I paid for that when I got home mm-hmm. um, so that was a monumental task um, there are other also, things to uh, to be uh, preoccupied with I suppose. yes yeah we had combat you know, there was a war going on so mm-hmm. it's like a but it was um, we, uh, for me, I had to, I, I knew a bit about screenwriting and the, the general concept of the process. I had already shot, you know, the, the footage, the bulk of the footage that we needed. I, I did some of the interviews, but not all the interviews we needed. Mm-hmm. So I had to, basically, when I would, I would go to work, when I was in Germany, I was still a chaplain. Mm-hmm. I was actually covering down on three squadrons at the time. So I had about... Um, uh, close to 2000 people, like still under me, and, and, you know, that I had to tend to mm-hmm. and provide care for and also chapel services and all that other stuff. But the counseling load was heavy, but, uh, we, when I would get home, I would work from, you know, like 5 PM till 12 AM and go to bed and then get up at five thirty. Mm-hmm. You know, five or five thirty, depending on what we had going. Go do PT, and I did that for weeks on weeks on weeks on weeks and months and months and months, um, trying to figure out how to produce a film. You know, take myself through a crash course on producing, mm-hmm. setting up the LLC, setting up the business side of stuff, raising the money. Um, what kind of resources of did you did you uh, utilize? Books and books. Every book I could find. Um, I was constantly just looking for lists on producing, fundraising, um, that kind of, that kind of stuff. Cause that's not really my strong suit mm-hmm. that that's, and for me, it feels like I'm a bird running through the mud 
when I'm doing on the producing side of things. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just do it because that. I have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, I'm not flying. Uh, I'm just and my wings are muddy. Mm -hmm. It's like it, it's I, I I don't like it, but it's a, a necessary thing. And so I did that, um, and I was uh, you know worked through that part of the process. Yeah, producing is an enigma sometimes to me. And also, um, you know, even past just creating something that you spend so much time and energy and mental power to create, uh, once it's done, the, the film's not at the end of its life. Like, it, nobody's seen it. So yes. um, to, to, to have the wherewithal to, to stick it out and, you know, okay, like, this is worth other people's time and... <laughs> You know, it's it's difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even for you know the, the limited amount of shorts that I've made, it's it's hard. It's you know, twelve festivals and maybe no acceptances or something. So um, yeah. What um one? How long did it take the film to fully take shape? And then what was the next step? Um, it during that time, I actually when I was in Afghanistan, I got I met a reporter named Mike Betcher. Mm -hmm. who uh, was with me during Strong Eagle 3, mm -hmm. or the last mission before we headed home. And we got to know each other fairly well. And uh, I lent him some of my footage. And that footage was used in a Nightline piece, uh, Emmy Award-winning Nightline piece. Um, and so it spun from there into a film called The Hornet's Nest. Oh, and yeah. so they... Mm -hmm they use some of my footage in that and during the, the third act. And so I was talking with Mike and talking with, uh, you know, some of the folks who worked on that film. And, uh, I brought on one of their co-producers to be a producer, Brent Donis, uh, to help shoulder the, the labor, mm -hmm. um, on that. And then also I had a friend, Priyank Desai, uh, who stepped beside me to, to help it out as well. So we had a great little team to, put together the business and, and to start, you know, mm -hmm. work, working this along. And so it went from, uh, it was being worked on while I was in Germany mm -hmm. for about a year. And then when we got out, we did about, um, a, a year of film festivals. And I, I knew nothing about distribution during that time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I had to figure out that whole process, but the film, it won 11 awards Mm -hmm. at film festivals and um that helped us a little bit i think uh on the distribution side because it at least got it out there and it got it noticed and you know created some buzz it was really actually bentonville uh film festival when we won best of fest there mm -hmm. that we started getting messages from people yeah which i, I thought it was odd because there was other festivals that we were at too and i was like oh we should have gotten noticed there but um, who knows? I don't, I don't know how that part works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, how did yeah. you vet the festivals that you submitted to and were you submitting yourself or were you, uh, doing that in conjunction with the producer that you brought on board? Um, I was, we were doing it together. Uh -huh. Um, I made a list of a bunch of festivals and the timelines and we started submitting to as many as we could. And, um, you know, and you've been through that process and it's like, it's, you know, just tracking it, making sure you're fulfilling everything. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was a bit crazy, but, uh, so once I figured out that I wanted to get out and put this film together, I just mm -hmm. talked to the chaplain Corps and just said, Hey, here's the film. I think it can make a difference. I think it can help people. Um, and my time was up anyways, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'd finished my, uh, contract. So, they let me jump out of the army and go do this hmm. uh, with honorable discharge. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's because they understood that it's not to me. It wasn't just a, a film, but it was a ministry too, mm -hmm. a way to connect and help, help people. That's and great. So, yeah. Well, um, so, uh, what was, after you got out, what, what's the process been like for you or what, what's been the day to day? Um, it was, so we, we spent, I'd say about, three years still like pushing we did a, a white house screening with mm -hmm. no greater love we did a congressional screening um we did 
all the festivals. And uh, then we did a theatrical run, small theatrical. Mm -hmm. It was like 22 theaters. And uh, after that, it it kicked out onto digital. And that is now on Amazon and Netflix. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like uh, I went through kind of a hard time because like right after, uh, you know, all that stuff, you go through, it's like the film was giving me something to focus on Mm -hmm. and keep me busy. And when I didn't have that, it felt like it just all bottomed out. (laughs) And that's when the PTSD, depression, everything is kind of like whack. It's like, uh, cause I wasn't processing while I was, you know, doing my job. Uh, I was just caring for people and I was focused on them. And, uh, so, so suddenly I didn't have that. And I was like, Oh, and, uh, so it was hard. It was really hard couple of years. Well, and, and yeah. they talk about that. Oh, other people that I've talked to on the podcast have talked about And then they're just filmmakers, right? They're not soldiers and filmmakers coming off of a a highly, they can be highly personal films, but they're not um, of the same nature necessarily. And there's still a depression. There's still a slump after completion of the film. Yeah. Um, I've experienced that to some degree. Um, It's just this kind of, it's not like a lack of purpose. It's just kind of like all your energy and focus goes into this thing. And then when it's done, it's, you feel a little empty. Yeah. (laughs) And it it was, it was very much that. And I, I I couldn't do no greater love forever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, uh, I had to start figuring out what I was going to do next. And, you know, what's weird. Uh, one of the guys who helped me through it all, um, his son was a medic in our unit. And, uh, whenever he was one of the guys who was hit by the suicide bomber, and so I came in on the quick reaction force. I prayed over the wounded and the fallen and helped load them up onto the choppers. Well, whenever he got back to Walter Reed, mm-hmm. he let his dad know, like, hey, the chaplain prayed over me. And well, then his dad reached out to me and his name is Mike Lau. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike was a Vietnam veteran himself and the father of two wounded warriors. Mm-hmm. So we became friends pretty quickly. And uh, he became a chaplain to a chaplain when I got out Mm -hmm. and was helping me process a lot of stuff, a lot of heavy stuff and how to do this transition. But whenever it finally came time to, you know, transition from no to greater love, it was just like, well, what do you want to do next? And I was like, well, I I want to do scripted features and I want to also still keep doing films like this, Mm -hmm. you know, that are connected to that tell stories about courageous individuals, what they're doing, as close to the front lines as possible and also figure out how can we not just tell their stories, but help them with that film. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to do things that are just, um, you know, just making money off of these people. <laughs> this, of course. this needs to be something that's not exploiting them. It's actually benefiting them and the tribe as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we put together our company. Uh, it's called echo Bravo productions and it's, you know, to echo the brave is the concept. Mm. And, uh, so right after that, I got a call from a guy who is a gold star, which gold stars are people who lost their loved ones in the war. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he's this 58 year old guy, uh, gold star who's going to be racing in the Baja 1000, which is the most dangerous off-road race in the world. And, um, He told me that there was a group of combat veterans who were competing in it, guys from SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, Marine Recon, Army Rangers, Special Forces, all these high-speed dudes. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, do you want to come out and film it? And I was like, I, at first I thought the Baja 1000 was a marathon. I didn't mm-hmm. realize it was an automotive race. I was like, I barely know how to change oil. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, but you know what? I, I'm interested in it because yeah. of the uh, – you know, the brotherhood side and, and the way these guys are using this race to process what they've been through at war. So, uh, last November I went and filmed it mm. and, um, it it's, was phenomenal. It's yeah. Annual or <laughs> annual every year. Wow. And it's, it's insane. I mean, it's like it, you're guaranteed to get in a wreck. <laughs> it's, it's just a matter of how bad and you only 30% of vehicles finish. Goodness. And um, so we uh, 
I don't, I don't want to spoil the ending, but I mean, it's like we, it, it was insane. And then, so I got like uh, Insta 360 donated some Insta 360 cameras on it. Cool. And we had about five camera teams and we went out and hit it. And what's cool, it's like with the Insta360, you can bullet time those suckers. Oh. So when you're seeing the wrecks, you're going to get to be able to roam in around the wreck. Oh, you know? wow. It's insane. It's kind of like the opening of Deadpool. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so I know it's like, that. yes, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, oh, man, this is going to be neat. And uh, so we captured that stuff and got it. And we're in the, we finished production. We flew all the guys out. We did the interviews. Um, so now we're in post-production and, uh, that's our next thing. And then I've shot, um, a couple of music videos Okay. and, um, for a veteran band. Cool. So it's, but that's pro bono work. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like what I'm wanting to do is set up a, uh, pro bono situation where with a nonprofit where we get veteran filmmakers and marry them up with veteran musicians to put music videos together. So that way both of them are kind of getting a step up in the industry. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's really cool. So, um, do you guys have a website? Um, it was, we're on echo Bravo productions.com, but it's wonderful. It, yeah. We haven't really set that up for a while. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's easy. It's like to find me like on LinkedIn, um, and, uh, or IMDB or Facebook. Yeah. Awesome. We'll, we'll put some links at the end of the show. Um, and, uh, or with the show so that people can come and find you. Cool. Um, so separately, I did want to ask, um, did, um, did, so the no greater love runs about an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, were there any bits, stories, footage, things that you didn't get to make the cut that, uh, you remember that you wish had been able to? Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I think one of the hardest things is, you know, you're, you're cutting out some, truly heroic moments and deeds mm -hmm. that should have been in there. Yeah. But because of time, you just can't. And, um, we had one military police unit that was attached to us. Mm -hmm. And, um, there was a female MP, uh, Vera who was hit by an RPG while on a mission. Mm -hmm. And, uh, because they were attached to us. I never went on a mission with them. I was with them like on one ride or just kind of some occasions, but, um, I hate that I didn't have the tools to tell her story. Well, mm -hmm. that broke my heart yes. you know, because she, she had a daughter. Mm -hmm. She, she should have had a spot in the film somewhere. Um, I just couldn't, I, I, you know, in tears, <laughs> I couldn't make it happen mm -hmm. because I did, and it wasn't because I, I would have been fine with adding it to the time, but we couldn't have done it well. And, uh, I didn't have footage of her. Mm -hmm. Do have you, um, considered the possibility of doing a short about her maybe with the uh, footage from the family or something like that? I it's, there's that possibility, but, um, I, I can do that with so many people. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's like it's like a, it's like a, at some point it, I, I run out of time, mm -hmm. and uh, I run out of tools, and um, I think maybe someday we could do something. But I mean, I I've thought about doing this as a scripted, you know, and then just pitching it out there and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. But the because um, there was a lot of story veins that we really sh should have gone through. There was other guys too who did who were wounded in combat and came back to us. I mean, like one guy who who jumped on a guy because a grenade was thrown at them, mm -hmm. and he took the shrapnel in his knee while covering over somebody else. Went back to the states, mm -hmm. healed up, and then came back with us. And um, he should have had his story told too. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't have his interviews, mm -hmm. so I was like, "Oh man, I yeah, I, I don't think there's a way to do this kind of film and not feel like a failure." in a lot of ways hmm. because it's, it's everybody sees what you did, but they don't see all the stuff that you didn't get to do. Mm -hmm. And which was not just stuff that was good, but some of it that was just downright sacred mm -hmm. and sacrifices, real sacrifices that you didn't get to tell. Well, and in perhaps those kinds of stories uh, are, are le best left fictionalized maybe because for 
out of respect or um, even just not being able to tell they, the, in the documentary itself, it could be, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a story that's told like this, you know, it's. Yeah. Um, I think so. And it's like, and that's my hope. I mean, it's, I, I can't approach it right now because it's still too close and mm-hmm. um, I need a breather from it all. Absolutely. Um, but at some point I do want to take a, a circle back to it and you know what? I mean, it's, it's a, a band of brothers type story. Mm-hmm. So I know it could do well fictionally. Um, certainly it's just a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. It, insurmountable amount of work. Sometimes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Well, uh, are there any, um, besides, uh, the Baja run, um, are there any other projects that you're, that you're cooking up? Um, or, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, can I mean, it's like there was, yeah. Well, I mean like there's this one that I, we're in pre-production on it right now. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a phenomenal band. The, the band that I've been shooting music videos for is called Three Beards. <laughs> and it's led by uh, a guy who's a former combat medic named Hank Barb. Hank was injured in Iraq and uh, he was medically discharged. And whenever he um, got home shortly after, his brother, who was active duty Air Force, wound up taking his own life. Hmm. So he was a pallbearer for his own brother on his own birthday. And uh, from everything that he experienced in Iraq and then losing his brother to suicide, he started to spiral out himself mm-hmm. uh, with addictions and, and pushed his wife and kids away and then uh, attempted suicide himself. By, But the EMTs were able to revive him. Mm-hmm. So while he was sitting in, at Walter Reed, or at a, a VA hospital trying to figure out what to do with his life, he wound up picking up a guitar hmm. and wound up becoming phenomenal at it and then started going and doing live shows. And um, they gave him a purpose again. And so music helped save his life. Mm-hmm. And so he put together a band, and you know, it's a southern rock kind of band, it's phenomenal. And so <laughs> I've I, he's one of my best friends, and uh, I, I once I heard his story, I was like, "Man, I'm going to shoot music videos for you until you're famous, right? And I'll do it for free. We're just going to make you famous. We're going to do it." And uh, so that's what I've been doing. Is and I was like, "But this story is the the thing that I love about it is that he's a guy who's found hope. Mm-hmm. He's been through the worst that this war has to offer. He's experienced all the same kind of wounds." All of us have experienced he's been at that bottom and he's found hope. Mm-hmm. And in, we don't need more stories of like how sad everything is. We need more stories that are pointing us towards the true north. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the solution? You know, the solution is find a purpose, find some friends and find hope and start moving towards, start marching to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's another project that that's you know, we're starting to kick up and um that's uh that's been fun very cool well um can is there um a timetable on uh the baja run or uh are you just kind of molding? i I better get it done soon (laughs) it's almost been a year i guess since you went well it's like we got the financing to cover production and then we have to raise up the rest for post-production sorry i'm not trying to put the pressure on you i'm just no no (laughs) It's, it's already there um i have investors so it's there. So it's there. But, but, yeah, but no, it's uh, raising up the rest of the funds to cover post-production is what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And then um, we'll kickstart post-production. I kind of had to knock out production at the time I had because the race was happening and I had my people. Definitely. And so I was like, well, we're going to have to piecemeal this sucker if we're going to hit this on the timetable we have. So we're raising up the rest for post-production and then um, we will – uh, we're, we're actually in talks with seeing if we can turn this into a government-based tour as well, alongside a theatrical. Yeah, we'll probably do like a small theatrical of some sort. Great. But doing a military-based tour along with it as well. Oh, very cool. And uh, yeah, so that's probably hopefully the next year, and then um, uh, along with the uh, the next one. Mm-hmm. Well, if you come to yeah. New York, let me know. Yes, sir. Um, well, great. is there anything else that you wanted to mention or talk about? I think that's it, man. I mean, unless y'all have any questions, it's, uh, 
it's I, I don't think my my story is kind of like a weird one. Um, no, it's been it's been great talking. <laughs> I've, I've really enjoyed it. And also shedding light and recently with my dad and all these things going on. It's been yeah. wonderful to talk and therapeutic to talk about it. Well, I, I appreciate it, man. And it's uh, I think this was definitely perfect, you know, hearing from you and your background. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's been wonderful to talk to you. Roger that. Hey, guys, just want to remind you that not only can you find the Full Frame Podcast on HMD's website, www.hmdfilms.com, but you can find us on Facebook, and most importantly, you can find us on iTunes, where we would really like if you could leave a review and subscribe. Thanks. Have a great week.